Welcome to the New Books Network. hearing Misa Azteca, the Aztec Mass, by composer Joseph Julian Gonzalez. Another musician who later became his wife, Monique Gonzalez, helped him expand the piece as they combined indigenous Mesoamerican elements with European ones to make a unique offering to the universal God, King of the Universe. In their research and writing, the Gonzalez's studied an ancient song, the Cuicapeu Cayot, or Origin of Songs, an ancient Mexica narrative that foreshadows the 1531 apparition of Our Lady to a simple indigenous commoner, Cuautla Toatzin, who was later baptized Juan Diego, and whom we are about to celebrate between December 9th and 12th, the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe, La Virgen de Guadalupe, the Empress of the Americas, the Queen of Mexico. In their new book, Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, a very readable and very impressive work of history and anthropology, the Gonzaleses argue that God had prepared the Mesoamerican people to receive Christianity, that this Nahua myth had been inserted into history to make Our Lady comprehensible to the Nahua people, leading to 10 million conversions, at a time when the Spanish conquistadors and encomenderos were making a mess of the New World with their slavery and their greed, polluting the evangelical work of the humble friars preaching the gospel. So let's talk it over as we approach the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and enter the Advent season on Almost Good Catholics. So welcome, both of you. Uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you and especially to read this beautiful book. Thank you so thank, much. Thanks, thanks for having, for having us. Having yeah. us, Chris. Yes. So uh, do, you have a, do you have a joke to share? Oh, yes. We even rehearsed it. Let's see if we could pull it off. What is Beethoven's favorite fruit? Banana. <laughs> Banana. <laughs> You've heard that one before, yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Um, yeah, well, you are musicians. You are musicians. Uh, you wrote a very, very good history book. I've, I've, I wouldn't have known you were not historians just because of the excellent research, the authorities that you pull into it. So what is the story? What is the story? How did you get into the story? What is the history? Well, as you said, I'm a composer. And, uh, you know, what composers do is oftentimes our, our minds wander. And that happened to me when I was driving from Los Angeles to the Central California valley way back in the 1990s early 1990s uh i was driving along and suddenly i heard this piece of music in my head it was a symphonic piece i noticed it had the kyrie eleison in it so i thought okay this is a something from the roman catholic mass but what was peculiar about it was that it had aztec rhythms and percussion <laughs> Thank you. 
And of course, when I heard that, I thought, well, this must be a Mexican composer. So I ran down a list of composers in my mind and different pieces that I thought I must have heard this somewhere before. But then suddenly it hit me that I was actually being inspired in the moment that this piece was being composed as I was hearing it. And I thought, wow, this is really fantastic. So I got so excited. Of course, I started unconsciously pressing down on the accelerator of my car. And I think I hit 96 or something. I think that's, well, of course, I know that because I got pulled over from the California Highway Patrol. Uh, I was given a ticket. I had to go to driver's school, you know, all that. And I on the ticket, I think it did say I was going 96. Um, and, uh, but while the officer was writing up the ticket, uh, I always keep music paper with me. So I started trying to write down what I was hearing. And that started off this, uh, well, eventually turned into a 14-year odyssey into uh, into this. Well, to, to connect the dots, essentially, the main premise of this piece was to talk about the Spanish uh, idea of the mass and, and the Aztec world. And that got me into this area of called Aztec poetry, which we're, I'm sure we're going to go into, but mm -hmm. it carries on to... Uh, when I met Monique in 2009. So go ahead and tell us what happened then. So really briefly, when Joseph first found um, the Cantares Mexicanos and he read the first poem. The Cantares Mexicanos is a collection of Aztec poetry. Mm -hmm. So when he first read it and, and the first song at the top, it sounded so much like the Guadalupe story um, that it threw him off and he kind of lost his faith for a period of time. Um, he had a, it took him a few years to come back. And then around 2008, he had a massive reconversion. I met him about in the beginning of 2009. And, and when I met him, he hired me as his assistant. And one of the first things he had me doing was at, uh, he'd recently gotten a request from Carnegie Hall to do his full piece, Misa Azteca, in, in its entirety. So what he wanted to do was to add a couple more movements to that or, or, or pieces of, of, of songs or in, into that new piece. So he turned to me and said, well, if you can help me find some song poems to build up, to build a, a new pieces upon, that'd be great. He hands me this book with all of these ancient song poems. I go to the first song and, you know, what do I see? It's a song that sounds just like the Guadalupe story. So I was kind of shocked and he, I pulled him into the office and said, can you tell me about this? Because it sounds so much like the Guadalupe story what do you know? And he's like, well, it's not quite that simple because if you go look on the translator's notes at the back of the book, I think you should read what he has to say. And, and what we discovered or what I discovered for the first time was that the translator was saying that this must be the basis for a, a future fabricated narrative of the Guadalupe story. And we were, so, I was, we were so completely thrown off by that. I thought, well, I don't know if I completely buy that, but maybe let's start looking into it. Let's start researching it. And between us, from that point, it became a 14-year odyssey or what we call our wonderful obsession, so to speak, where we just figured out we have to get to the bottom of this because we were just encountering so many um, issues with secular scholars constantly trying to tear down the Guadalupe story and the tilma and everything else that we just had to figure out what it was all about. And, and so this began. Yeah, well, that is providential. I think perhaps miraculous. It feels that way to me. That just the idea that you mm. heard the mass that you were to compose um, is is literal inspiration, and it reminds me of the scene in the 1980s movie Amadeus, mm. where Mozart's wife is showing his work to his rival Salieri, 
And he's like, how can mm -hmm. these be originals? Mozart just hears music completed. And here you are, mm -hmm. another another mortal who is taking dictation from God uh, and composing this, this beautiful mass. I'll put a link to it in the notes below because I was listening to it uh, this weekend as I was reading your book. Um, and I, oh, you know, wow. and it's just, it's, it's lovely. It's in, you know, I'm not a musician, but I, I can feel the, the classic Latin mass elements and I can hear the, the Mesoamerican percussive elements and I can hear the romantic um, trumpet, you know, uh, and there's all these different cool things that all mm -hmm. work together and the birds and the birds. Uh, so I hope we will talk a bit about that. Mm -hmm. So remind us of the Guadalupe story. Who is um, Juan Diego, whose original name was Kwawatlatoatzin? I'm going to say it wrong, but he was a common man, a poor Mazahual uh, Mexica Indian, minding his own <laughs> business. And he had this remarkable story. To kind of preface it really quickly is to talk a little bit about the background that was happening right before the four, a series of four days of apparitions was, you know, the Mexica Empire fell in 1521. And over the course of the next 10 years, there was an attempt to evangelize the natives and bring them over to Christianity, but they were running into a lot of walls with that um, because of just huge traditions of polygamy and idolatry and slavery, just a, a lot of practices that were antithetical to Christianity, as well as some of the other things that we're going to be bringing up in the course of our conversation. So by the time Juan Diego comes in, the Franciscans were about ready to pack it up and go home. In fact, um, Bishop Zumanaga actually uh, wrote to the emperor of Spain and said, we might as well pack up and go home because it isn't working. It isn't as many as conversions as we initially thought. And Juan Diego was one of the few who, who did convert. Um, uh, contrary to a lot of popular relief, he actually was not Mexica. He was actually um, something called Texcocan, um, as, oh. as well as his, his town you. was a part of um, another group. But um, what's interesting is that that particular group there, there were quite a number from the Texcocans that converted, and he was one among them. So one day in on December 9th, at least in, in our calendar, December 9th, 1531, he was going to Mass. It was about a 14-mile walk. And as he's walking along, he passes a hill named Tepeyac. And as he gets to the foot of it, he finds himself swept into this paradisal realm. And it's just filled with color and lights, everything's sparkling. And this, he's just surrounded by music. And it, it has such an intense reaction to him. We find him exclaiming, and these are his first words, am I worthy of what I hear? And and this is an important line. We'll, we'll go into uh, further details. Why is that important? But if you can keep that in mind, as I prepare to say the next line, the next thing he says is, could I be in the place my ancient ancestors spoke of, the flower paradise in the land of heaven? <clears throat> and the moment he says this line, it might seem like a throwaway line, but we've discovered it's actually not. It's an indicator of the entire story of Mesoamerica, but we don't know it initially. And the term that he uses in his native Nahuatl language is a term that will be used a lot in the book and, and even in our conversation. And the term is in Lalpan and Tonakat Lalpan. That means basically the flower world paradise. And the flower world paradise is, is actually the name of a 
solar and floral indigenous belief system that millions shared over a huge geographical region like lasting thousands of miles. So it actually goes all the way up in like Wyoming and Idaho, goes through the entire American Southwest, all of Mesoamerica and to the top of South America. So there's a lot of people that had a belief in that. And the, the reason why we know that is because over the last 30 years, archaeologists, anthropologists, and linguists have discovered this flower world paradise. And it's indicated by archaeological ruins, as well as, you know, pottery shards and murals. But also, and this is where our uh, Misa Seca comes in, is indigenous song poems that mm -hmm. describe this place. And also, they where they're pondering, why is this place important? What is it teaching us? And I'll turn it over to Joseph to kind of talk more about that. Well, basically what happens in the story, so he goes to this place called Tepeyaki, hears this beautiful music, and the Virgin Mary appears to him and says, she says very interesting things, the way she identifies herself as the mother of the God of far and near in, in Nahuatl, the language that they were speaking to each other, it's in Tlokanawake, that's an important point, and we'll bring that up later. But she requests that a temple be built on the top of that mountain. So what happens is that Juan Diego needs to convince the local bishop, Bishop Zumarga, the one that we had just mentioned, the one who was so much in despair over the failure of the missionary efforts, so he travels over to the bishop to give the the, Guad the Blessed Virgin Mary's message. And the bishop, of course, doesn't believe him. And he is kind of set with a certain amount of trials. I mean, he's an indigenous elderly man who only speaks Nama, doesn't even speak Spanish, and must convince the bishop. So eventually what ends up happening is that the the, the bishop asks for a miracle. And that miracle gets back to, he, he relays it to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the Blessed Virgin Mary says, come back the next day. Well, what ends up happening is that Juan Diego's uncle, Bernardino, ends up getting sick. So this obstacle comes, another, you know, a personal problem comes, and he ends up not meeting her on the west side of the mountain. He meet, he meets her on the east side of the mountain. This is, this is a very important point that we go into in our book. And Guadalupe, the Blessed Virgin Mary as Guadalupe, points Juan Diego to the top of Tepeyac Hill, where he goes up and he finds the flowers, these miraculous flowers, beautiful flowers. He brings these flowers down in his tilma, or his cloak, an outer garment that he is wearing. He brings them as, true, as, as proof of this miracle happening. He shows them to the bishop. As he opens them up, the image of Guadalupe appears, and that's the famous image that everybody, that is one of the most reproduced images in the world right now. And um, that's a basic outline of this story. But as we're saying, this story, uh, which eventually led to millions of conversions, and of course we still have the physical tilma, this physical image today, is just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more to this story. Uh, Monique was alluding to it a little while ago, but that's mm -hmm. that's a basic synopsis of the story. Yeah, and um, I, I showed you at the beginning the poster here in my classroom, and I have it as a sticker on my car, and I see it at the basement of the church where my um, son's scout troop meets, and I see it, mm -hmm. of course, inside the church, and I see it everywhere, everywhere I go. Um, it's significant that the Virgin Mary appears as an Indian woman. It's significant that she speaks to him in his native language. Like she does, she doesn't look 
you know, she doesn't look like a like a northern Italian Renaissance painting. She looks <laughs> she looks more more familiar. Uh, so the, you know, the god of near and far, um, and and everything. Mm-hmm. And you write that the the conversions catapulted or skyrocketed after this, right? Yes, millions. they say nine to ten millions were converted in the following decade after her appearance. So that would be between 1531 and 1541. Yeah. And so, and, and that's very, it's very important. And I, I think we should add that the problem that the impediment that was happening earlier was the missionaries were getting into their own way. And even if the missionaries were good men, they were also working with these um, conquistadores and encomenderos who were not behaving in a Christian way, who are often exploiting mm-hmm. the indigenous people for their, for their labor and service and just trying to get rich and gather up gold. Well, that could ruin the gospel message right quick. And so here she comes in person uh, and in a way that is, you know, more familiar and not not foreign. Um, I, you quote a lot from the the Ricard book, The Spiritual Conquest of um, of um, of Mexico. Mexico. Yeah. One of the things that I remember, I read it in graduate school, so over 10 years ago, but I, mm-hmm. I just remember how at some point, I think is in the in 1555, but I could have this fact wrong that they stopped accepting indigenous uh, people to the priesthood, um, which just seems like a terrible move. You know, if you're a universal church and you're trying to reach everybody, the very mm-hmm. first ones, you know, uh, if there's a lot of people who maybe have one indigenous parent, one Spanish parent, or maybe just become, you know, very effective missionaries, but the empire got in its own way and was ruining things. And this, 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 this beautiful intervention by Our Lady changed it. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's the story. But then you discovered this um, in the Cantares Mexicanos. You found uh, a similar story that was causing trouble for for people who are critical, uh, but uh, and also yeah. um, for well, at least initially for for you as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, what Monique was alluding to is that when I saw this poem, when I started my research on Aztec poetry, um, I I got in I got my hands on this book Cantares Mexicanos by a gentleman named John Beerhorst, who's an anthropologist, and who actually was the first one to to translate in any language these ninety song poems. And this is in 1985, so this is fairly recent. recent. And uh, so I read it back in the early 1990s. And of course, I saw this first poem that shook my world because it was so similar to the Guadalupe story. And of course, uh, they were using, they were saying, this is the source material for a fabricated Guadalupe narrative. So it's all a hoax. Of course, I'm Mexican-American as, and as you stated, uh, you know, Guadalupe is everywhere. My mom, my grandma's name is Guadalupe. I even went to Our Lady of Guadalupe Elementary School. It caused a lot of problems and really hurt my faith because I thought to myself, ah, this is it. This is the way the Spaniards did it. Mm-hmm. They copied things from the indigenous in order to dupe them. And it caused a lot of problems. And of course, Monique explained the way that it, it hit her back in 2009, several years later. But as we embarked on this 14-year odyssey, we were trying to be as open-minded as possible. We were saying, okay, we're willing to see to the point that Guadalupe is perhaps a hoax if that's where the research Mm -hmm. leads us to. And and we were really trying to not be biased 
in it. We just wanted an explanation. We, we really were. And what we really found was that given everything that we saw, um, of course, we read several books that actually are critical of the whole Guadalupe event. But when you took into account this poem and other uh, other um, secular research areas in this one area called Flower World, which Monique alluded to a little bit, is that this could all be seen as evangelical preparation, that this can actually be interpreted as a way in which God prepared the indigenous. Because the, the explanation that secular scholars give, you could really poke a lot of holes in it really, really mm -hmm. easily. And of course, we're getting into Guadalupe apologetics, but uh, in which we, we we vowed to stay away from in, in our book because it's just a whole other rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that it there had to be another explanation. And of course, yeah. we as believers said, well, God does do supernatural things. Mm -hmm. He did lead the Hebrews on that side of the world through prophecy, through mm -hmm. things that were implanted into their culture. You could look at that. Mm -hmm which all led to the Messiah. And of course, this idea of preparatio evangelica or evangel evangelical preparation is something that was accepted in early Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. So it's a way in which missionaries went out and they were able to, so, so, so to speak, um, they were, so to speak, being able to use things within pagan cultures, concepts. St. Paul did that on Mars Hill mm -hmm. to be able to convert the people. But what's really unique about this story is that the missionaries were actually primarily against Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. And we can get into that a little bit. The story is a little bit unique because it seems as if God was speaking directly to the indigenous people in order to convert them with elements that were within the Guadalupe narrative. And I'm sure we're going to get into that. But um, I hope I asked, answered your question. You did indeed. And know. so I think that's very important. So, you know, Bishop Sumaraga and the other missionaries who would not have been acquainted with this narrative, they wouldn't yeah. know what they were seeing, right? This would be a direct message in cultural terms, only understandable to um, uh, uh, the different Nahuatl people, the Mexica or the, you said, Teo, Teo um, Texcoquen, where is he from? Uh, Texcoco is part of the yeah, triple Texcoco, alliance yeah. at Texcoco. Yeah, yeah. so for all around that giant lake and, you know, the, the shared stuff, and you say all the way up north and all the way down south, mm -hmm. um, um, elements that would not have been comprehensible to outsider Europeans arriving mm -hmm. there. Correct. That's how, that's how uh, they weren't that clever. They couldn't have planted that in anyway. And I think that happens all the time. I, I was talking to a, 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 a anthropologist about ancient Near Eastern religions, well, a lot of that, a lot of those elements in old Babylonian religions reappear in the Hebrew Bible, except for this time, God is not like an angry dragon devouring his mm -hmm. children. God is a loving uh, father who values every human life uh, uh, infinitely. So he he takes existing symbols and he flips them into something way more joyful and redeeming um, and affirming and um, mm -hmm. something like truly is the good news. So. What, mm -hmm. Would you tell us the story, the original story about the flower world paradise and how it's a disappointment and then how Our Lady flips flips it? Okay, so um, the Quiquipicayot, or the origin of the songs, we'll keep it simple so people can remember it more easily. This origin of the songs is basically the story of a singer who's looking for precious, sweet, holy flowers. 
and he starts asking all of the uh, um, environmental, uh, like the birds and the butterflies around him, where can I find these flowers? And what's really interesting is that eventually one, one bird, a hummingbird steps forward to lead him into this flower world paradise that's just um, swimming with sound and light and everything's emanating light and music. And um, in the in this place, he supposedly finds these flowers and then gathers them in his tilma and carries it down because he wants to share them with his people. But part of the, the crux of the story is that he only seems to do that. He doesn't actually do that. And when he discovers that he didn't actually do that, he you start seeing the song, the it's a song poem, the narrative, turn into a lament where he's crying out and saying, why couldn't I get those flowers? But he also gives the answer in the same vein. He says, it's because I'm worthless, because I sin on earth. That's why I can't catch and possess those flowers and bring them back down. He says, but, but what's nice about it is that even in the course of that poem, he's also saying, he gives an out as to how someone can get the flowers. And he says, the way you can get an out and get the flowers is if the God of far and near and Floka Nawake makes you worthy. And there's this, so there's this constant emphasis on worthiness to be able to possess these glistening, iridescent, incredibly, incredible smelling flowers. So the, the ancient song ends with him never able to achieve his quest. He kind of fails in that, which is, um, and so you feel the full weight of that sadness in the ancient singer. And, and by virtue of the ancient singer, all of ancient Mesoamerican man is lamenting that they can't find the flowers. Right. And and what we learn when we get into the, the concept of flower world is that we see that kind of the hidden meaning underneath this story. Essentially, the flowers become a metaphor for truth, that the singer is actually looking for the truth of life and existence uh, found that could be found in these flowers. And just to give you a, a little bit of the take on flowers, is that the flowers it's a relation of the flower as being a connection between heaven and earth through beauty, which now we're getting into the aspects of beauty, truth, and goodness, the transcendentals, that early Mesoamerican man actually had a concept of the transcendentals, and one can reach that heavenly place through beauty. And what is this heavenly place? Well, the heavenly place is the flower world paradise. Mm -hmm. The flowers come from this flower world paradise, and the singer, the singer is trying to call down inspiration from heaven. In fact, when we start talking mm -hmm. about these flower song poems, flower and song and truth mm -hmm. are used inter interchangeably that we find in these poems where the singer is saying, I call down my flowers from heaven. I, I the singer, sing the flowers. I am mm -hmm. searching for these flowers of mm -hmm. truth. And of course, this is found in the flower world paradise. The same, using the exact same term in Xochitlalpan, Intonacatlalpan, the phrase to which Juan Diego refers at the beginning of the Nikon Mopoa. So um, there's much more that we can go into, but you're talking about the way that it was impediment. Of course, it was a impediment for us because of the way the scholars frame it as being a hoax, okay? Mm -hmm. um, of course, um, that's the way that it's basically seen in secular circles these days. But what we're trying to do, at least for the believers, is to be able to show that this, you can't really understand the Guadalupe encounter mm -hmm. unless you understand what do the flowers mean? What does the flower world 
paradise mean that Juan Diego refers to at the beginning. And once we start talking about flower world, we can go even more depth. And of course, when we start talking about Aztec flower song poems. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to add that this reminds me of the expulsion of the Garden of Eden, you know, yeah. and you guys talk about paradise lost, that 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 phrase from from Milton. But I cut you off, Monique. What were you going to say? Oh, um, so the reason why this story is important is because a lot of our understanding of the Tilma hinges on us believing the story first, because a lot of people may not be aware, but in the historical record, there isn't evidence of millions of people flopping to Tepeyac and seeing the Tilma. And so they had to have been converted by something a little bit different only because the historical record doesn't support it. And a lot of secular scholars use that as ammunition ammunition as to why that might not have been true. So if we we take that in consideration and start looking at the power of the story in and of itself and how it mirrors, or not mirrors, but actually is a, a monomyth or a hero's journey and take it in the context of that, that enables us to kind of understand how the indigenous might've absorbed it. Right, exactly. Um, what, I would, what I would add to that is that um, we are in no way denigrating the importance of the role of the tilma. It is miraculous. Um, it is miraculous. It's it's part of, but what we're basically saying is that it's it's part of a of a bigger story. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why we have to bring up kind of these historical anomalies mm -hmm. about it is because we kind of have to face it. We have to say there is an earlier poem that sounds like the Guadalupe story. Um, there is not enough historical evidence to support that millions flocked to Tepeyac um, mm -hmm. before they before they converted. We we have to present an alternative uh, reason why this happened mm -hmm. because Guadalupe is the, in the front line of this battle of ideas. Yes. And it is making a lot of, especially young college students who may take a Latin American survey mm -hmm. course um, where Guadalupe is taught as a myth, as a fabrication, um, we have to get into that fight on a scholarly level. And that was in this book is really kind of the first salvo or, or one of the first salvos the first in, salvo. in this direction. Yeah. And I, it's really a question of perspectives. And if we start from a point of view where we believe that God created uh, the whole, everything from the beginning to the end, and for him, it exists, you know, mm -hmm. as a unity. And for us, it exists as I only know what's happened so far. I can't tell you what'll happen in an hour but God knows it already. And he's just telling this wonderful story that plays out in each of us down to the fact that he knows if, you know, a hair on your head will turn black to white. Um, he, know, he knows all yes. of that. And so he has chosen to, to speak to us in such a way because for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, God, you know, God is love and God is relationship. And what he desires is for us to have this adventure um, here in relationship, discovering what he has created. Uh, which which yes. you connect to the true myth. Uh, and you gave us the lovely example of the two old Oxford fellows, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and how Tolkien, uh, the Catholic who took C.S. Mm -hmm. Lewis, the atheist, and converted him to Christianity, I think he later became a uh, an Anglican. But he told he told Lewis, hey, read this gospel as a myth. Read this gospel as a myth, because then you'll you'll understand it. Even though it's a factual, a true myth. Even though there was mm -hmm. a Pontius Pilate, there was mm -hmm. a you know a, a Jesus of Nazareth, and there was yes. a Caesar Tiberius, and all that. What is the true myth? 
How does that work? Well, to understand the true myth, maybe it would help to do a quick breakdown of the um, the hero's journey or the monomyth. Yes. Sure. And that's Joseph um, Campbell and uh, Carl Jung, but mostly Joseph Campbell. Yeah. What was kind of cool about it is that, you know, we all kind of understand that myths kind of express sort of the deep human need to understand our meaning in the world. And what Joseph Campbell came along was that he realized that a lot of them have the same structure. And the basic structure is you have an ordinary person in an ordinary world who's pulled into an adventure or a quest of some type that he has to achieve in order to, uh, I guess, to, to next get to the next point. And along the course of that, he, he encounters lots of conflicts and obstacles that are trying to prevent him from achieving that quest. But in the process of that, he also gets help. He has mentors and friends that will help him to achieve it and get over all of those obstacles. Um, and what's is it, they invariably will always encounter some type of um, movement where they have to go through some type of internal death, or maybe they actually die in actuality and are resurrected. And after that, they then achieve their quest and once that's done, they usually have some type of physical memento to show that they achieved their quest, that they then want to take back home to share with everyone that they love. And, and that's the basic story of, of the hero's journey. Um, the way true myth kind of ties into that is um, when Tolkien and C.S. Lewis came along and, they were, and Tolkien was trying to convert, you know, C.S. Lewis, they have a shared love of myth shared love of story. And thankfully, Tolkien was was able to kind of insert a, a little bit of a paradigm shift to Lewis that maybe the reason for all of these myths or this, these monomyths was because it's preparatory for something else or maybe somebody else. And into that gap, he was able to show that Christ could be the fulfillment of that hero's journey, that, that they all exist in order to explain who Jesus is and why he does what he does. So, um, but the major difference yeah. here is that that those are myth, those are stories. Mm -hmm. But what happened with Jesus is that he was truly a historical figure. He really did live on the earth. He really did die and was resurrected. So he conquered that. So therefore, he's stepping into the historical timeline as a true myth. And with that concept of the true myth, mm -hmm. it it lighted up the the, the light bulb in mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis's mind where he was able to see all this backstory leading to one point that all of mm -hmm. mankind, universal, universal history, if you want to look at it, mm -hmm. was all pointing in one direction. And that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world and makes paradise available for, for mankind, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's monomyth and true myth in a nutshell. Yeah. And then, and then there's a, the reversal of everything, right? Death becomes life and, and resurrection. And uh, mm -hmm. um, that that is the cent like that moment uh, is the center of our history. If you look at medieval maps, uh, the, the medieval maps always put Jerusalem in the middle and they always had, you know, Europe in one corner, mm -hmm. Africa in one corner, Asia above it and mm -hmm. paradise mm -hmm. on top. And so the way, the way people, um, the way you know Christians for two thousand years have understood uh, this is, is 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 one giant story by one storyteller, literally the word, <laughs> verbum or, or or logos. And so here you're telling us a tale where our lady turns a failed quest into a successful quest, and mm -hmm. that is that that is the gospel. That is the good news uh, that you are you're worthy already, um, and and that leads to the conversion of of not only Mexico but of the Americas. Right, exactly. What, what what we're essentially saying is that this earlier story of the failed hero is part one 
of a big meta narrative, God's salvific plan for the Americas. And it functions very much like the, the failed hero that we see all across the pagan world. Of course, it happens in, in a sort of a way with, with the Hebrews, of course. But, but the fulfillment, when Juan Diego goes to the top of the hill, he's fulfilling the quest that had eluded the singer for thousands of years. This is just one aspect. But of course, as we were saying, the flowers are a metaphor for truth. So he finds the fruit. He finds the truth. And essentially, if you tie that in with the with also that a part of the story was that only the God of fear, God of far and near in Tlokanawake, the God of far and near can make one worthy. Well, when Guadalupe addresses herself as the mother of the God of far and near, everything ties together. Guadalupe is the mother of the one who can make you worthy mm -hmm. for paradise, for mm -hmm. eternal life with your creator. And um, of course, we, we we wouldn't know that unless we knew the earlier backstory. But what ends up happening is that if you tie the hero's quest, it's 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 a way to be able to explain something very simply in a very simple manner mm -hmm. to people. Mm -hmm. Did the hero find the quest or did he not? Well, in this case, Juan Diego did find the, the truth as a baptized Christian. This is a super important part of the story. Because he found the flowers of truth, he is finding Jesus Christ, the one who by his sacrifice make one's worthy, make one worthy to enter the flower of paradise, to be with eternity for with your creator for all of eternity. So we believe that it's a long process of what happened, of how the how this story would have gotten out to the millions of people. We can, it would have been turned into a flower song poem, which would have gotten out to millions of people. But And we can go into that later. But we're saying there's so many connections. We talk about, we specifically narrow it down to four connections, which we call the four conceptual pillars, which we outline in chapter two of our book, in order to try to help the reader to be able to see these concepts, how they started from the very beginning of Mesoamerican civilization and how they develop over the, uh, the centuries. Mm -hmm. And they mm -hmm. climax with this poet conference in 1490, where they really think about and, and fully flesh so many of these philosophical ideas, which just a few decades later in 1531, they all mm -hmm. come together and crescendo mm -hmm. into yes. this, uh, this symphony of meaning to the Nawa, where they're able yeah. to say, ah, God has been looking out for us all this time. Mm -hmm. God has been laying out a foundation of concepts yes. that are being fulfilled through Christianity. And how do we get that? Well, we have to get baptized. Mm -hmm. And as the story goes, millions were craving this baptism uh, after the apparition of Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you make the point that there's a lot of symbolism present there that, you know, people would not have registered it on a kind of conscious level, because, you know, your average 16th century person hasn't been to graduate school, but they would recognize deep down the symbols of this, this flower mountain or the water mountain or the vertical axis and the horizontal mm -hmm. axis of the heaven and the earth of the cave um, of the four, the four petaled flower, which is kind of a cruciform mm -hmm. flower, but is also part of this uh, Nahuatl symbol of uh of the alta petal, which uh, James Lockhart discovered in the 80s. Oh, and, yes, yeah. you know about that. Yeah, wow. yeah. And, and then you show in your book that there is exactly one four-petaled flower on 
the image of Our Lady on the tilma, and it happens to yes. be in the center on her womb, which is exactly the center of the world, which is exactly where Jesus is. And again, that's part of the cruciform, you know, the the, the symbol of the cross is there too. Um, mm. That's 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 wonderful. How it's just wonderful how it's all written in to the fabric of the world. Absolutely. Mm. Um, just just to kind of expand on that idea. Um, a major concept that we see all throughout ancient Mesoamerica is, as you mentioned, this concept of the axis mundi. And I'm going to I'm going to attempt to explain it right now. The known universe is described as a horizontal plane where you have north, south, east, and west. And as these uh, lines they they cross, okay, to a center point, and what is important is that from this center point, we get a vertical axis, and that vertical axis leads us to another dimension. It can lead us to the underworld, but can also lead us to a supernatural realm. So the axis mundi is a three-dimensional model of something that's beyond our comprehension, beyond the dimension in which we live. So what happened, unique, I think uniquely probably in Mesoamerica, is that these four directions were portrayed as a four-petaled flower. And what it's signifying is that it is through beauty, signified in a flower, that we're able to give a glimpse of ultimate beauty, beauty that exists in this the divine realm. And, uh, and that really sh shows that in Mesoamerican man, they tried to uh, reach divine things, divine truth, through artistic means such as flower song poems, through uh, mural paintings, through pottery shards, through the through their artwork, the thing that we see on in in material archaeological finds, and that is really the basis of flower world, where anthropologists, archaeologists, and linguists are actually making these connections because they're seeing this specifically, this four petal flower configuration all over the place. And they're, actually, they're saying that this east to west direction is the way in which many of these ancient cities, such as Teotihuacan, the the the, uh, um, the city of the gods, which is right outside of Mexico City, and we have the remains of those three wonderful pyramids. And what happens is that they um, they 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 it's it's the way in which they're interpreting, especially things that have just been found recently, and we can go into that, such as a shaft that have been found both under the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Plumed Serpent. So all these things, man was centered on this four-petaled flower. It meant he was craving that connection to divinity. And of course, the way that it works into the tilma is that that four-petaled flower is over the womb of Our Lady of Guadalupe in the tilma. And one way to explain it is that we're seeing it on a two-dimensional surface but if you try to see it as a three-dimensional image, that actually the center point is kind of like a wormhole to eternity. And of course, what is happening over her womb, the, it is a wormhole to Jesus Christ, who is the truth, who is the logos, who is the one that, who, who by his sacrifice, allows us to be able to go to that supernatural dimension. Yeah, I was at Teotihuacan in... Five years ago, with one of with one of my kids, and we just went there and climbed the Pyramid of the Sun and Pyramid of the Moon, nice. and they have a beautiful museum there where you can see a lot of the imagery that that you are, um, yeah, describing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
thing. So, so today I tend to think of Mexico as a very faithful country. I've, I've visited, I don't know, five times. And, uh, you know, you can always find a mass on any given day in any little town. Um, but I also know that there's a sort of anti-clerical secular movement that started, especially mm. in the 20th century, especially mm. after the revolution. I know that the, you know, the, the, the long period of, of PRI rule has sort of downplayed the authority of the church. Mm. And there's, of course, the Cristero War. Um, a lot, a lot of my students are um, from from Mexico and Latin America, and it's really interesting to talk to them because um, some are some, many are Catholic, some are evangelical Christian, but then there's also these kind of like interesting other religions that are, I don't want to say syncretic, but they have elements of Christianity, but also elements of older beliefs. And I've talked to historians who talk about um, like sort of uh, un what do you call it covert sacrifice that goes on at least in like Zapotec culture here and there. So. Uh, you know much more about this. How would you describe Mexico today? How would you describe the Catholic Church there or other Christian denominations? And also persistent strains of paganism, you know, all these centuries later. What's your take? Well, many, many historians have written about that. In fact, they actually give it a term. They call it Mexican Catholicism. And unfortunately, what that means is that they say that from the very beginning, and they actually bring up Guadalupe, to say that from the very beginning of this massive conversion, paganism was always there, and paganism runs throughout Mexican Catholicism. They say that um, it's it's a it's a unique type of Catholicism because it so overtly <clears throat> brings in pagan elements. Now, of course, you could extend that argument, and many Protestants can actually say that Catholicism is has so many pagan elements into it. So, so we're not alone on that, on that charge, but it's, it's very pronounced. And unfortunately so many Mexicans and maybe even Mexican Americans mm -hmm. here in, in the United States. And I see it in California a lot. They tend to believe that Guadalupe was an Aztec goddess. And um, they even refer to as Tonantzin. Now there's mm -hmm. a lot of that phrase is loaded and, and it's, it's beyond what we can bring, bring up right now, but essentially it's saying that it's proof that uh, that this is occurring. Of course, the danger in that is that by saying that Guadalupe is a pagan goddess, you're just one step away from this concept called La Santa Muerte, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. this I very a very demonic belief that is used by so many of these narco mm -hmm. traffic traffickers mm -hmm. and human traffickers mm -hmm. in order it's a, it's a demon that they that they pray to. And um, but also you not only have that happening and it seems to be rising within these communities, but at the same time, the evangelicals, the Protestants are kind of picking off uh, Catholics. Mm -hmm. uh, we've lived in Mexico on and off for many years and we've seen that. Um, so the thing is, is that, the you know, the, the, the problem with that and hopefully what our book will help with is that we're saying that you can have pagan elements that but they point you to the fullness of Christianity. Mm -hmm. This is the way in which it actually looked in history. Why would you want to go back to that to that pagan time period and 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 believe this? Everything was moving you towards victory in Jesus Christ. So I, th I think it's very important as we were talking about stories mm -hmm. and stories define ourselves. Would you like to define yourself as an Aztec warrior, like mm -hmm. many of these gang members and many of these uh, narco traffic countries do, as they're saying, well, you know, we must not be afraid of death. We must be able to fight. We must be able to, to kill. 
And but the thing is, is that Jesus Christ offers a better story. Actually, if you are Mexican or if you are Latin America, true Catholicism, Catholicism is in your DNA. And you got to get back to that. That is actually being truly Hispano or Latino or however you want to call it, not this new kind of paradigm that's only really been around for a few decades. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I think I'm answering questions. There's a lot more that we could talk about immigration, sure. transhumanism, different things like that. But uh, that, that's yeah. kind of in a nutshell what yeah. we think is going on right now. How about the marigolds in uh, El Dia de los Muertos? Is that a is that a related flowers as a bridge to the next world? I think. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, the way in which beauty and art plays in giving us a glimpse yeah. of the transcendent. You know, mm -hmm. Benedict XVI wrote a lot about this, about the role of art, the role of beauty, mm -hmm. and why it's so important for us to experience beauty mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And because it transforms it, us, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it takes us out of our daily existence and it gives us a glimpse of the divine. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. that's why I think our roles as, as artists, um, of course, uh, you know, leading chant and leading yes. beautiful polyphony yes. in the traditional Latin mass is so important to us because it 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 does that function. It gives us a mm -hmm. glimpse of eternity. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. In summary, we we usually kind of sum up things by talking about what this this means for us today right. in terms of the chaotic, chaotic times that we live in. You mm -hmm. wanna go there with this? Perfect, yeah. If we take into consideration the time period that Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared in, it's in the 1500s, and it's just exiting out of uh, a period of massive sacrifice for the Mexica empire. So they were kind of already undergoing a, a deep a death of sorts. And then with the Spanish coming in and there's a, a, a multitude of change, but we're also dealing with the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s where millions of people left the church and it was going through a, a massive amount of chaos. A lot of people just were very confused on what, what the church taught, what, who God was, what their, their lives meant. Everything, all of, everything was up in the air and right into the middle of that, Our Lady Guadalupe steps in and starts giving answers and starts paving a way on how we can hang on in the midst of such tumultuous times. And we kind of equate that our late, we believe Our Lady Guadalupe, especially in today's times, it's kind of a perfect um, answer for a lot of that because for the for the Mashika, it pulled them out of a pagan area and, and into a Christian era. And for the church at large, it was sort of a rejuvenation for a lot of the sort of the death blows it was taking from other quarters in Europe because even one of the missionaries on the ground made the comment that the numbers that converted of the nine to 10 million, it got that God saw fit to bring the numbers back into the church that had been lost in the Protestant Reformation. So I don't know, we always consider it a, a point of hope and sort of a reminder that God is in control of history because so much of the thrust of the book is that God um, prepared 3,000 years worth of Mesoamerican history to kind of pr prepare people for this eventual truth. And and why can't he do that now as, as dark as it may seem? And as why is he crazy not as, doing that? Why right is now? he not already doing that? Maybe we, maybe we don't see it right in the moment, but he's still moving. He's still altering the landscape. We just have to open ourselves to that. And so we have our marching orders and we're going to hold on and we're going to spread the good news of the Lord. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it doesn't, it's not, he's not a God of trends. <laughs> he's a God of mm. enormous, no. enormous, big picture, big, big picture. picture, sudden miracles, sudden reversals, 
you think he's dead, but no, he's not. He's he's, he's not. actually conquered death. So absolutely. Um, so we should not be we should not be worried. As a as a Pope John the twenty third used to used to say, like it's your world, Lord. I I'm going to bed. <laughs> you, you know you know what to do next. So um, yeah, we can trust. Yeah. Would you like to close us uh, with a with a blessing or a prayer? Yes, let's do the uh, Ave Maria in Latin. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum Jesus, et benedictus fructus ventris tuum Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostrae. Amen. 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 Chris Odinitz and Joseph and Monique Gonzalez recorded this conversation, episode 74, on November 13, 2023. It was the feast day of Mother Cabrini, an Italian-American foundress of the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I just saw a trailer for a movie about her coming out next year from Angel Studios. It looks pretty amazing. 
Our logo is from a stained glass window at the Spanish Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos, and the photo comes from the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales at www.english.op.org. The music for this episode is from Misa Azteca by Joseph Julian Gonzalez, composed in 1997. I took pieces from several movements, the first, the third, and the fifth, but I hope everybody listens to the whole thing and you will find it below. Thank you for listening, dear brothers and sisters, and please email me anytime at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. It will be a pleasure for me to hear from you. Talk to you next time.